is yes. the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. It is. Um, hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. Um, but not just any other Brexit Breakdown podcast because it is a live episode recorded at the Podcast Live event in London on the 7th of April. Um, I don't know if we thought about recording it in Bolton but changed our mind uh, <laughs> at the last minute. Um, we've got a live audience of actual people who would rather be here listening to our wisdom than lying in bed on a Sunday morning. Um, and it's that, that sort of spirit. <laughs> It is that sort of spirit that makes me think Brexit is going to be all right. Um, because we're live, uh, it's slightly different. For a start, uh, any coughing you hear won't necessarily come from Anand Menon. Uh, it probably will, but he can at least uh, just blame someone else in the audience on this occasion. Um, secondly, you get to hear the bits that I usually cut out, uh, which is me going, uh, a lot, and the occasional... Um, inflammatory or illegal comment. Uh, and thirdly, we will take questions from the floor uh, towards the end. Um, but uh, the fact remains that although I may feel like Freddie Mercury at uh, Live Aid looking out on this sea of faces, I am still James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And to that end, I am joined by four guests today. Um, We've gone double wonk before, we've gone double guest today as well, um, which means I'm probably not going to get a word in edgeways, which is why this introduction is so long. Um, so first of all, from the UK and a Changing Europe, we have the stars of Question Time, uh, director of the UK and a Changing Europe, Anand Menon, and professor of European law at Cambridge University, Catherine Barnard. Good morning. Uh, and we're delighted to be joined by uh, Mike Gates, MP, who now sits in Parliament for Change UK. Morning. Or as this podcast called them before anyone else did, Chuka's Independent Party or Chukip. Um, I, did, I did think, right, if your middle name had had an A in it, you could have been Mike Andrew Gapes's Independent Caucus cor and called yourself Magic. <laughs> but, you know, I had to work quite hard to get there. Uh, thank, thank, thank my mum and dad. <laughs> and we're joined by uh, Chris Wilkins, the former speechwriter and director of strategy to one Theresa May, who, uh, the last time I checked, is still Prime Minister. At the time of um, recording. Yes, <laughs> that could change. Um, can we start with you, Chris? Um, you were a director of strategy. Um, for a start, do you get bored with keep being introduced as former this and former that? Uh, would you rather be introduced with whatever you do now? Or um, <laughs> do you look back on that time in number 10 and sort of feel quite proud that, it, that you are? You know, the former director of strategy at, at number 10. Uh, I think I'm very glad to be former. I'm very glad, <laughs> very glad not, not to be there now, because um, I don't envy them uh, the task. But uh, uh, I suppose, you know, it gives me an interesting perspective on the 12 months I was there, because I joined number 10 in August of 2016. Um, just after the Prime Minister got there, uh, and I was there until just after the uh, very, very successful 2017 mm. general election that <laughs> went very well. And when you left, did you think, it's all right, I'll leave because these guys have got it, it's all going to be fine? <laughs> um, <laughs> there were many reasons for leaving. Um, but fundamentally, I left because um, at the end of the day, what I was advising wasn't really being listened to, which is why the election campaign didn't go very well. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's just move on well the election campaign will come into this but let's start um, with a sort of we'll try and do a sort of overview of Brexit mm. from where we've been where we are and where we go next 
Um, I think we can all accept it's not going well, right? Um, so what's gone wrong? Um, perhaps we'll start with Anand. I believe you've written a book called uh, <laughs> Brexit and British Politics, which I assume is hopefully be out of date by now. Um, <laughs> briefly, what, what, what has gone wrong? Well, we were, we were talking before we came on about uh, Nick Robinson's podcast this week where he had Geoffrey Cox on. And I was struck when Geoffrey Cox said, this is actually quite complicated, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it? It turns out that sort of unpicking this 40-odd year relationship in two years is proving to be quite difficult, quite techy, and we need a bit of time and space to do it, so we probably need this extension. And I listened to this slightly open-mouthed, and I just think where we went wrong was the government assuming that wasn't the case to start with, quite simply. Um, well, then that maybe leads on to, to you, Chris. Why, why didn't the government realise this was going to be tricky? I mean, uh, Alan's absolutely right. Geoffrey Cox is absolutely right. And, and looking back now, um, uh, it was very much the attitude at the start of this process um, that uh, people felt that actually this wasn't going to be as complicated as people had made it out to be. Um, and the reason for that is because the people driving the process at that stage were the sort of uh, arch-Brexiteers, the people on the right wing of the Conservative Party who had spent years, frankly, campaigning for this uh, and claiming that there was going to be some great nirvana at the end of this. And their attitude very much was, this is not that complicated. And what they said was, firstly, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to reach over the heads of the EU and talk to directly to member states, directly to leading member states. That turned out to be wrong. They said that ultimately German car makers and Italian Prosecco makers and French fishermen would force their governments to negotiate with us. That turned out to be wrong. They said that the Europe would uh, actually uh, not want no deal as much as we would. They would be terrified by no deal. So actually, if you held that out as the thing, um, then they would be forced to come to the table. And you know what? That turned out to be wrong. And what this all amounts to is fundamentally that Brexit is a right-wing dream and all of the things that they based it on turned out not to be the case. And they were driving the agenda at the time. Um, uh, well, I'll put it to you and I'll, I'll put it to Mike as well in a tick. Um, why didn't you realise that? I mean, <laughs> well, and, <laughs> we and, all, we, it's and all very well saying that now, but we all knew that then. Indeed, and there were many people who were arguing in it. And, you know, um, when I got to number 10 in the August of that uh, 2016, I was sort of astounded to find that what I thought would be a government running around doing nothing other than sort of thinking about Brexit and I expected to find a sort of a whole machine alive with these things and meetings going on and all this kind of stuff and there was sort of none of that at the time and you sort of trying to probe the system to say well shouldn't we be doing this and that etc etc um, but actually um, you know y you try uh, and people in the system were trying to uh, sort of impact on it um, but the th that was the, the view that held sway and you can look back at the comments that were made pre-referendum by people saying this can be the easiest deal in human history and all of this kind of stuff. You know, that was just the prevailing narrative of the time and you tried to puncture it but there's only so much you can do. Uh, Mike, you've been in Parliament since 92. Um, you've seen some of these people who were advising or, or putting their point across to the, the Prime Minister in 2016 at close quarters. <coughs> I mean, I haven't been in Parliament and I had an idea that some of them were headbangers. I mean, we've been calling them <laughs> headbangers for years. Um, that's a bit of an indictment, isn't it? That, that nobody spotted that these people weren't perhaps the best ones to be listening to? Well, I was elected in 92, as you say, and I was involved for many, many hours in the debates around Maastricht. Uh, including the tied vote that wasn't uh, where the speaker, Betty Boothroyd, gave the casting vote. And I c my biggest recollection from that time is Bill Cash, 
Ian Duncan Smith, Bernard Jenkin, uh, going on and on and on and on for hours. Um, and they were marginal figures at that time and when John Major. And there were others, uh, Redwood, uh, Peter Lilly, uh, Theresa Gorman. I mean, they, they, but they were, they were a marginal group. And the difference is that th that ideological position has taken over the grassroots of the Conservative Party and there are large numbers of Conservative MPs who either agree with it or are afraid to challenge it. And that's why we are where we are with the, in terms of the, the Tory party. And the other side, of course, at that time, um, when Major's government was disintegrating, we knew that there was a credible opposition out there, first John Smith, then Tony Blair, that could form a government. Um, but, of course, we had, you, know, you talked about the triggering of Article 50. You remember Jeremy Corbyn said it should be triggered the day after we had the referendum. I mean, the fact that Theresa May triggered it prematurely when the government hadn't agreed its position was bad enough. But if Corbyn had had his way, we would have gone straight into Article 50. So he hadn't thought through what this meant either. So we've had a woeful failure of political leadership. I'll come back to that in just a second. But, I mean, you talk about... When I use the term headbanging, I'm not using it in the pejorative sense, other than that, uh, other than that they were uh, uh, obsessed with, with one idea. Um, and that's a, a noble position, if you like. And yet, it hasn't quite come off. Is that because the idea is fundamentally well, flawed, or is that because the people proposing it are fundamentally flawed? 45 years of integration of British institutions, trade policy, um, economic relationships, environmental and, and, and political developments is to be swept aside and, uh, you know, Geoffrey Cox may have had his Dominic Raab Dover moment, um, but, the, <laughs> but, but, but the fact is that anybody who understood the nature of the complexities of modern industrial production and trade would have known you couldn't just easily get, as Liam Fox said, 40 trade deals. Well, we've got about eight, I think, and the Faroe Islands and, and a couple of other small ones. I mean, this is just indicative of the failure to understand what we were dealing with. Um, and yeah. Can I just say on that, I mean, just I mean, to your point you asked earlier about why didn't they even know, so I can remember one of my tasks was to craft the Lancaster House speech in January of 2017, and I can remember in the opening section of that speech in one of the drafts sort of writing, you know, that this was going to be a difficult process and there would be compromises that needed to be made and things like this. And it all got taken out, and it all got taken out because you weren't allowed at that point to say anything negative about the process, because of this prevailing narrative. Can, can, I, Mike, can I just ask you something, Mike? I mean, is what you're saying it's impossible to leave, or is what you're saying Article 50 is rubbish, or is what you're saying actually we, we should just not have triggered Article 50 and sorted uh, ourselves uh, out? I think I'm saying all those things, but I, <laughs> I to 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 to. to say, if the British people actually decided that they wanted to leave the European Union, they should at least have been informed in a prior process about what leaving would involve. And when the government decided to trigger Article 50, it should have worked up in advance what the plan was and then have that negotiation um, on the basis of something that was concrete with an agreed government position where there weren't resignations within three days and all the other things that, that have happened and an opposition which was led by somebody who understood the importance of this issue in terms of the real details and not make contradictory remarks all the time and not actually having a clear policy. Um, Catherine, uh, 
if you've got, I'm sure you've got thoughts on what's gone wrong, but I also wonder um, to what extent hindsight comes into where we are now, um, particularly around triggering Article 50. It was very clear at the time, for those who had some EU law background, that this was going to be difficult and would require huge amounts of planning. What was also really striking at the time was that there was a total failure to understand the EU at all and how the EU functioned. So you had people like David David said, it's all right, I'll do a deal with the Germans. Well, that fundamentally understands, <coughs> it misunderstands EU law because EU law says that trade deals are the exclusive competence of the EU. This is not exciting, not sexy, but it's what structures the way that the EU proceeds. So the whole uh, departure on the UK side started off from a, a misunderstanding about how the EU worked. There was also a total failure to understand really basic concepts like the customs union, like the single market, and crucially how that would play into the Northern Ireland border issue. And this was a real problem because we did a lot of events in the run-up to the referendum, we did a lot of town hall events, and virtually never were we ever asked about Northern Ireland. We were asked about the EEA model, the Norway model, Canada, but we were never asked what effect would this have on Northern Ireland. And I think what we now see is, of course, and this is what the Brexiters say, that the Northern Ireland tail is wagging the Brexit dog, but in fact, it also totally misunderstands the structure of the United Kingdom, and it also misunderstands just how important the Good Friday Agreement is to the operation of the peace in Northern Ireland and the relations with the South. But the Brexiteers would also say that Northern Ireland is con a completely sort of non-issue and it's been confected, invented by the European Union to stick to beat us with because actually technology can solve it all, which comes back to the fundamental principle here, which is that there's people in this debate who think it's all terribly easy and actually isn't complicated and, and they would say to you Catherine and I, I'm, I'm only giving you the their view I'm not saying it's my view but they would say actually everything you've just said is sort of bureaucratic complication but it's, it's just not that difficult and we're allowing the politics of the EU to to get in the way the and, that, and that would be the, their argument. The, the trouble is it takes two to tango and we had when we were leaving the EU, we were told that there would be a deep trade deal with the EU. And that requires some understanding of what the other side want, as well as what we want. And it also needs, I'm afraid, some understanding of EU law, which says that it's the EU that does the negotiating on trade issues, and it's not individual member states. Now, of course, big member states have, in fact, the politics kick in, and I often disagree about the relevance of politics versus law, but the law provides the framing, and the framing is it's the EU that does the negotiations. Anne and will say, politics is... Politics always wins. And this is where we fundamentally disagree. But <laughs> um, well, let's. So, how do we get out of it? I mean, <laughs> we can all be quite uh, <laughs> hacked off, perhaps, about what's gone wrong. I mean, we agree lots of things have gone wrong, but you know, we are, we are where we are, um, and I think we'd all agree that this is a crisis of we can call it political constitutional. There's a very good episode of this podcast discussing whether it's a political or a constitutional crisis, but it's a crisis of some description. Um, what will it take to rescue the situation? Is it politics then, Anna? Some political leadership, some political change? Yeah, it's definitely politics. I mean, it's worth remembering that despite everything that Chris said, we've come up with a withdrawal agreement that is remarkably sophisticated and actually a pretty yeah. good attempt to square some pretty unsquareable circles. You yeah, know, nobody likes it. Nobody likes it, but actually, as compromises go, it, it probably is where any government would have ended up at the end of this process. Yeah, it's I would been terribly have said. sold. Uh, it's, but, but there are several things went wrong. Firstly, as Chris said, it wasn't sold. Uh, Theresa May 
got this agreement, came back and acted as if she was slightly embarrassed by it, uh, yeah. which isn't the best way to sell it to a very, very divided parliament. Mm. But secondly, there is politics, because actually the argument about the withdrawal agreement isn't about the withdrawal agreement, it is about who gets to control our future negotiations yeah. with the European Union, which is why Labour and the Tories are locked in a room with Labour saying, but what happens if Johnson becomes Prime Minister and Theresa May not really answering? Right, that's where we are, that's the problem. You haven't answered, how do we rescue it? Because, it, yeah, we've got a deal, but nobody likes it. So, what, do we have to have a general election on the deal? Is that the way to, to, to go ahead? What's the answer here? Well, you can't have a general election on the deal, can you? Because the Prime Minister's tried to have a general election about Brexit, and it turned out not to be about Brexit, and it turned into a complete failure. So, it's very, very hard to decide in advance what a general election is going to be yeah. about, because actually the people tend to decide. I think we have to have an electoral event. And I think the general election is getting more and more likely because I see no alternative to us going to the European Council next week and having to stomach the fact that they say your extension is going to be a long one, go away and figure it out, which in turn is going to trigger a leadership bid in the Conservative Party one way or another, which might well lead to election. A general election isn't going to solve anything, though, is it? We're just well, going to end up with the same sort of house, aren't we? We'll go through six weeks and we'll just end up with I, the same I'm, hung parliament, right? I, I don't buy this claim that a general election won't change anything because I think it you know general elections do change things and one of the things it will change is that both parties are going to have to sit down and write a section of a manifesto about Brexit that in itself will prove to be a excruciating uh, and B, we'll move the ball forward. It's going to have to. Labour are going to have to decide, do we say in our manifesto we honour the outcome of the referendum or not? We've got Mike's new party there now, which is going to be nipping at their heels from that side of the debate. The Tories are going to have to say, do we double down on our 70% of our electors who are now Leave voters, or do we try and readjust our policy? And we don't know what will happen in a general election. We don't know whether someone will get a majority out of it, but it is a way of trying to shift things forward. Well... If anybody knows, it's the author of Brexit and British politics, professor of, you know, lots of political stuff. What's going to happen? Come on. What, who's going to win? In a general election. In a general election, what think would be I, your best guess as to what, what would happen? I think I know enough to say we do not know. <laughs> <laughs> that's rubbish. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. Mike, obviously, you were in the Labour Party not long ago. You're now in Change UK. What would the Labour manifesto be and what will the Change UK manifesto well, be? The last Labour manifesto that was written for the 2017 election was written by a guy called Andrew Fisher who was uh, supporting uh, anti-Labour candidates uh, in a, a very short period before that and the key people in Corbyn's inner circle are Andrew Murray and Seamus Milne um, and uh, the reality is um, if Corbyn is fighting an election on European issues, he, as he's made clear in a number of statements recently, he doesn't like the single market and he does not want um, to move to a position of, of having another referendum even though 80% of the Parliamentary Labour Party and the bulk of Labour members want that. So I think it, 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 if there was to be an early general election, and I think under the Fixed Term Parliament Act it's not easy to get an early election, and there will be lots of us who would say let's have a people's vote on the deal, a withdrawal agreement, because that is a clear choice as opposed to farting fighting an election with um, a Labour Party which has got internal divisions, uh, 80 MPs today calling for a people's vote, 25 uh, two days ago uh, opposing one, um, the Conservatives with their internal problems, I think it would be very difficult to have clarity out of that 
in an, a general election because people vote in an individual constituency for an MP with a good record. He helped me with a housing case. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I, I like him, or I think she's great. Um, you know those kind of uh, perceptions. And I, so I don't think a general election would solve this. I think it would be more likely. To, if we need a solution, we're either going to have to, this week, grasp the nettle and get through a people's vote amendment or something uh, that, that comes through of that kind, or if the European Union are not going to give us the long extension, and, I, and that is not certain yet, mm -hmm. um, then we will have to consider revoke so that the country has more time to, to consider how it gets out of this crisis. Personally, I think a referendum got us into this mess. David Cameron called a referendum, then ran away. And I think it's, Parliament has shown it's so divided, the only way we'll get out of the mess is to put the withdrawal agreement and the alternative to remain with the deal we've already got to the people in a referendum. Can I say something about revoke? Mm. So it's the only thing we can do unilaterally. So the extension, we need the agreement of the EU27 on Wednesday. And of course, what happens if they say, no, you're not going to have your extension to the 30th of June. Right. And, um, and <coughs> Theresa May hasn't formally asked for a much longer extension, which is what's on the table. And that intriguingly, pushes us back into a position of either crashing out on Friday or actually having to ask for revoke. Now, of course, that's what a lot of Remainers want. And it is possible, we know from the judgment of the Court of Justice before Christmas, the Whiteman case, that it is absolutely possible to revoke, but with some conditions. And the conditions are, it's got to be done according to our constitutional requirements, so it would require an Act of Parliament. You can see that's going to be straightforward. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's got to be unconditional. And what the court didn't say, but the Advocate General said, and the Advocate General gives an advisory opinion, it says it's got to be done in good faith. So the question then is, if we just try to revoke Article 50 with a view to re-triggering it come the autumn, that doesn't look like acting in good faith. But, of course, one parliament can't bind its successor, so there's also an argument to say what the EU was requiring of us is actually anti-democratic, because we can't commit ourselves never to trigger Article 50 again. And are you uh, looking at revoke because the people's vote ain't going to happen? People's vote isn't straightforward there's not legally. There's numbers in Parliament for it, is it? There's that issue first, and then even if we, there were the numbers in Parliament to call for a, 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 a people's vote, it requires a further act of Parliament to trigger the process for a, people, a second referendum, and that act of Parliament has got to say things like, what is going to be the question? Is the question going to be uh, a binary question, leave, remain, or is it going to have a three-pronged question, leave, remain, or leave with Theresa May's withdrawal agreement? What, do people really understand what's in the withdrawal agreement? And then what, also, what's the franchise? Is the franchise going to be the same, the same folk who voted last time, i.e. the same franchises for a general election, or should it be extended to, for example, EU nationals living in the UK who are by definition most affected by the Brexit deal? Now, I suspect the answer would be no, you've got to keep the franchise the same, because otherwise the accusation is you're cooking the books. Right, so basically there's no way out. But um, this panel is brilliant because we've covered off general election, uh, people's vote revoke. What about, Chris? 
a Theresa May Jeremy Corbyn deal. <laughs> You've obviously worked very closely with Theresa May. Mm -hmm. um, You'll be aware of Jeremy Corbyn. You've probably seen him on the telly. I'm familiar uh, with his work. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> is that going to happen? Any chance of that? So, uh, as I understand it, the current process that's going on, the discussions between the the, the two leaders, are born of a. Uh, they are genuine. They are born of a genuine realization that Brexit now is beginning to pretty much destroy everything it, it, it touches. I mean, uh, Parliament is tired, um, the political process is tired, the country is sort of driven by this, um, and something needs to happen. So, uh, as I understand it, you know, we should take at face value the commitment to the talks and to trying to do a deal. Um, that's a long way from saying that you know that a deal is is possible. But it's always been my view throughout this process that the safe landing space for the country and for the Conservative Party, frankly, um, uh, but for the political process, was around this idea of a customs union. And we might not call it a customs union. We might call it a customs territory. We might call it Allen or whatever you want to call it. Or the backstop. Or, or the backstop, instead. <laughs> Don't call it um, that. Um, <laughs> but, but, but fundamentally, that was seemed to me always to be the place where uh, it made sense. So, so I think a deal is, is possible, but the politics of it um, then becomes incredibly uh, difficult. Um, and uh, I think the probably odds are against it, but it is not impossible at this stage. It strikes me there's something really weird happening in Parliament at the moment because the Tories and Labour Party are sort of facing off in opposition. So Labour whipping operation against meaningful vote three was tremendously successful and they voted it down. The Tories looked at the Labour Party voting down a withdrawal agreement that many MPs basically agree with, got stroppy, and on Monday night in the indicative vote said, OK, we're not voting for your soft Brexit options either. So there's polarisation at the level of the parties, but actually... You know, cynically, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn want exactly the same thing, which mm -hmm. is why they're in a room. They don't want a referendum. They don't want a long extension. They essentially want this to go through, uh, but they can't quite find a way of getting there whilst reconciling their troops to this idea. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a curious sort of dilemma they find themselves it's in. It's part of the reason for that, the fact that they're both rubbish. I mean, you know, uh, that is not, I don't, think that's a, I don't think that's a controversial view. That's not taking, that's being impartial. They are both clearly rubbish. Is that fair? They're not the best party leaders I've uh, seen in action in this country. And it, 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 the personality is part of the problem. Well, a broader point I make is that, um, to answer that question, is that what this is is a failure, I think, of communication, really, over a number of years. Because, as I, as I say, the, for me, the customs union was always the point at which the parties would be able to coalesce around. And therefore, from the government's point of view, what they should have been doing is spending the past two years or something preparing the ground for that, that compromise. Um, and, you know, the PM isn't the most effective communicator, arguably, um, but actually the process <laughs> has not sort of s uh, laid the ground for it either. So when the PM stands up and sort of rules things out all the time, she's got this thing about standing up and always ruling things out. You think, why are you ruling things out so definitively when it's likely to be the place you're going to have to go? Um, so I do think that is a failure. The communications has been a failure. Um, but it is still not impossible that they could come to a deal. I mean, obviously, you, you wrote a lot of her speeches, a lot of her most famous speeches. Um, <laughs> y as you say, she likes standing up at the moment and saying things. This seems to be a regular occurrence. Yes, it does. Uh, yes, popping it up does. and Absolutely. saying stuff. Yeah. Um, what are your views on, on that as a communication strategy? Because, it, again, it seems I think it's not terrible. brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrible. Um, so uh, a few weeks ago, what was it, two weeks ago, when uh, the Prime Minister delivered one of her now regular addresses from Downing Street, and it was the one that I regard as disastrous, where she basically sought to pit 
uh, MPs against the public and, and the other way. Um, so on the day that that was happened, the rumour started to swirl on Twitter that she was going to make a statement that evening. Um, and I was actually passed through an airport lounge somewhere overseas, and I sent a message to somebody in number 10 and said um, two things. Firstly, if she's going to say something interesting, i.e. either a general election or a referendum, can you please wait until I get off the plane before you do it? <laughs> Secondly, if she's not going to say either of those things, please don't do this, because it will be a disaster. But they've got this thing about always rolling her out and getting her to say things in this sort of terrible way, and then she sort of makes these grand statements and then turns, turns around and walks away at the end, and it's all a bit awkward. They've got to stop doing that. They've just <laughs> got to stop standing up, ruling things out all the time, get round the table, come up with an agreement, and then communicate when you've actually got something important to say. But it's, it's, worse th it's worse than that, isn't it? Because on two separate occasions in the last fortnight, the Prime Minister has snatched, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. There was that night when there was movement in the Labour Party. People yeah. in the Labour Party were starting to say, OK, look, we might have to consider this withdrawal agreement. The Prime Minister stands up and says, turns the people against MPs, and all those Labour MPs basically think, screw you. Yep. And then last yep. Friday, the same thing happened again with the third meaningful vote. A load of Labour MPs in Parliament were seriously considering voting for MV3 just because they want this out of the way. And that morning, the Prime Minister basically intimated that if meaningful vote 3 goes down, we might have to have a general election. And of course, those Labour MPs looked at each other and said, we can't support it now. I mean, there are many things as a Labour MP you might get away with once, backing the MB3. But once the Prime Minister has said, if I don't win, there might have to be an election, she basically made it impossible for Labour MPs to back her. Which is absolutely right. And, and it comes back to the, sort of the point I was making, the lack of a communication strategy over some time. They are living day to day. It's all about, can I get through today? Can I get through to tomorrow? Without a long view of what the strategy is and therefore how you get there. And that's been lacking for far too long. That's true of all politicians, I'd suggest, at the moment. I mean, I, I mentioned headbangers earlier. I mean, of course, Change UK have been accused of being headbangers and being yeah. fundamentalists and not willing to compromise. Is that um, fair? No. Um, <laughs> uh, well, well, you we, would say that. Uh, we, our people have been involved intimately in drafting cross-party positions, working with the SNP, with Caroline Lucas and the Greens, with the Liberal Democrats, with Plaid Cymru, and with some Labour and Conservative MPs. We, we are cooperating with others, but what we were very clear about was that in the indicative votes, uh, it was crucially important that the people's vote stayed in the frame. And that was why we voted the way we did. We got some flack for it, because Ken Clark's position uh, was, was, was not carried. Um, a number of people abstained and we actually voted against it. Um, that's because the customs union alone is not a soft Brexit. It's a hard Brexit. Because there are the, the issues to do with the single market and it doesn't entirely resolve the Northern Ireland question either. And frankly, it was crucial that in those votes the people's vote, which got the biggest vote amongst all of the choices, but they all went down, was still in the frame. If we'd not voted that way, then it would have been all about the customs union, and that would have been the whole basis that we would be going forward on, rather than the people's vote staying there. So we, we, we knew we would get criticised, but I think we did the right <coughs> thing. But I mean, the, the crucial thing there, as you, as you say, is um, that all the votes went down. Yes. And that means 
uh, no deal comes into play, right, well, Catherine? Well, that's what the law says. It was al always going to be the case that that was not the uh, final outcome. That was an indicative process to see what positions were still standing. And clearly the so-called Malthouse Compromise and all those other fantasy things, they are not in the frame. But the People's Vote and the Customs Union are still in the frame. If we brought them together, we would get a deal through, or if we brought together a People's Vote with a withdrawal agreement, if Theresa May pivoted to that, she would get 400 MPs behind her, she would have her legacy, she would say, I've delivered the deal, and now it's up to the people. But she can't do it because she's totally unimaginable. And nothing has changed. And Corbyn, of course, is present but not involved. So they're equally bad for this outcome. Would you agree, Catherine? Yeah, I think what's concerning about the, the indicative votes is there seems to be a profound confusion um, in the country and in parts of the House of Parliament as well that the indicative votes are purely about the future and they're not about uh, the withdrawal agreement. You, and the withdrawal agreement is the precondition for any of the models going forward. So you need to have the withdrawal agreement because without the withdrawal agreement, the EU will not negotiate on any future arrangement because they'll say, we want the money that they think we owe them. We want to make sure the citizens' rights are guaranteed and we also want to make sure that uh, the Northern Ireland border issue is resolved. And so all of this idea that we could have some sort of, we could leave on the 12th of April and then we could go into transition, wrong, because transition is built into the withdrawal agreement mm. and we've got to agree the withdrawal agreement, which we haven't done. Now, the, the, the other legal problem is that the, on the future, customs union, single market, whichever model you might want to go for, even if as is being proposed at the moment, that that future model might become enshrined in some act of parliament. Of course, that is not binding on any future parliament. So if there's a general election, Boris Johnson or whoever it is becomes leader of the Conservative Party who campaigns on a manifesto commitment not to be in the customs union, any agreement on a customs union now is not worth the paper it's written on because it can be reversed by a later act of parliament. And that's the bind that the Labour Party are in as well because they know that if they agree on some sort of customs union plus or minus, it, won't, it may not survive encounter with the next parliament. So the only way you can do it is to put it into the l legally binding text at EU level, namely the withdrawal agreement. But the legal problem there is that the competence, the legal competence, the legal power for the EU to negotiate under Article 50 is confined to the past, not to the future. But you might be able to say, well, actually, some of the withdrawal agreements are already about the future. Look at the Northern Ireland border. Look at the position on citizens' rights. So already you can see some muddying of the waters. There's, I mean, I can see why you and Anna fall out, because there is a... There are many reasons. Um, and it's not just over <laughs> politics. Uh, yeah, mainly as a rubbish football team. But, um, uh, <laughs> um, but there is a fundamental problem here. It feels like there's a fundamental problem, which is that the law is pretty clear. Um, and the politics is not necessarily engaging with the law. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and that's where we are. And, and the other, if you look at it from an EU side rather than from a domestic side, you see deep frustration on the EU side from EU politicians because they say, why can't you have some sort of grand coalition as we do in Germany and we can get these things sorted out? That what the EU side don't understand is grand coalitions don't work in the UK because we are such a, a, a binary system. And you know, Chris or Alan can talk more in, in more detail about that. Um, well, listen, let's 
I'm aware that we're, we're getting pushed for time. Um, and I was going to move on to what happens next, but I'm guessing nobody really wants to try and predict what's going to happen <laughs> next, right? Uh, in terms of where this ends. How, how we get out of it? You want to... Oh, well, he's got, going for it. He's going well, for it. Well, no, I suppose I've got a question for Mike, which is... <laughs> I understand why you've set up the new party, and I understand all too well your profound frustrations with the Labour Party and its direction of travel. But does it... I mean, one of the things that worries me a lot about our politics and about Change UK is what, what fundamentally is destabilising party politics is the fact that the referendum triggered a division in society that isn't the normal political division. Mm. So it wasn't left versus right, it was values. And you seem to be a party that is deliberately placing yourself at one end of the value spectrum. And my fear is if we end up having European Parliament elections and the like, our politics becomes dominated by that values divide and we start becoming America. Does that not, does that not worry you about what you're doing at the moment? Our politics is divided in that way already. The problem is that the political parties don't reflect that um, in, so that people have a choice. If you vote for Jeremy Corbyn uh, or you vote for many of the uh, very good pro-European Labour MPs who are still there, you are voting for a completely different ideological approach to Europe. If you vote for Theresa May or, um, well, we could say um, Jacob Rees-Mogg um, as an example, you are voting for a different vision, a different view of the nature of the country, but they are within the same political parties. And I think that the polarisation that you refer to will be there. I, I, this issue is not going to go away, whatever the outcome of the next week or whether we have a referendum or not. We are going to spend decades trying to deal with the divisions that we have in our society. And what we, those of us who've left our parties, I didn't leave the Labour Party just because of Corbyn's woeful position to facilitate Brexit. I also left over anti-Semitism. I left over um, not wanting to have a, a Labour government in power which would be supporting Maduro, Assad and Putin. And, and those for me are as important issues then, then uh, you know, th so there is an ideological yeah. chasm here that we exist within the parties. And so when we say our politics is broken, it's not just a slogan, it's real. And I think we need sensible, mainstream, centre-left, centre-right politics in this country. And at the moment, it's not represented. So what's the legacy of Brexit in that regard? In terms of, does Change UK... Once it becomes a party, it's not even a party yet, is it? No, Hopefully we, in the next week we, it's going we to have an party, application right? in with the Electoral Commission, <laughs> and um, we hope they will be approving it very soon. What's the what's the the goal? Is to what become the party of government or get um, into a coalition I, uh, or uh, just to, to be well, there offering no, a different no, voice? No, we, 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 let's go through <laughs> steps. One, we've got to become a party. Two, we've got to fight if there are European elections and do well in those. Three, cooperate with other political groupings who have a pro-European approach to politics and also what we've said all along is evidence-based policy making um, and that, 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 that goes right across the gamut. That if there is an early general election then obviously we will have a big task to get you know, 73 European candidates is hard enough in the short term, but to get to fight a general election with that, that number of candidates when you haven't got a party infrastructure yet would be really hard. But we would have to do it, and uh, we would see what the people in the country decide. Do they think um, that it's time for a real change? 
and would they give us the support? Now, we, we just don't know. I think politics is volatile. I think there's 40, 45 percent of the electorate who are looking for somewhere which isn't there at the moment. And the Liberal Democrats are a tarnished brand because of the history with the coalition and so on. So they, they might be in a position to come through and take some of that, but they aren't yet. And we, need, we really need a new approach because the current system is failing the country. Is the, is the legacy of all this, Catherine, that people like you get to go on question time, which is <laughs> undoubtedly a good thing, uh, and people engage more with the law, with the realities of, of politics, perhaps? I think what's been really positive about this whole experience being part of UK and Changing Europe is that we have done a lot of public engagement and, and actually there clearly is an appetite in the public to actually try and be told some facts and that's something I find very encouraging that Mike's just said, you know, what his party wants is evidence-based decision-making because while we know that there's lots of um, passion out there, we also know there's a real desire for people to say, well, look, this is what the law is, you might not like it, but that is the legal position. And sometimes the law is clear, sometimes it's less clear, but I think people do quite like to be told, look, this is what is clear and these are the grey zones. Um, okay, I would just say in, in Mike's defence that you might like evidence-based policy making, but you were on the Foreign Affairs Committee for donkey's years and have expertise and got kicked off because yeah. of party politics, so that's yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> that I, wasn't a I, great start. I, I, myself and Ian Austin, who also went independent, were purged. Others who went independent um, in the past have never been purged. The SDP were not purged, but in the new model Labour Party, apparently, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's done differently, and I'm about to be purged from the NATO Parliamentary Assembly as well. Um, so right, listen, I know we're getting pushed for time, and we have to fit in the feature. We've got one feature this week. What's it called, Anand? What's it called? In the unlikely event that this podcast hasn't sufficiently enlightened you... Nearly, nearly. Yeah. Uh, about, about right. Yeah. Basically recommendations. People were recommending stuff to understand Brexit. We've had all sorts of different uh, uh, items over the, the last 18 months. Um, Chris, can we start with you? What, have you? what would you recommend to anybody who wants to understand this? Well, palaver? gosh. Um, so, uh, I, uh, probably a couple of things, if I can. But, yeah. um, but yeah, one yeah. Really, um, uh, so, how did we get here? Well, um, I think if you want to understand how we got here, I think uh, it would be worth um, looking at any, uh, well, obviously any UK and a changing new document. But <laughs> um, <laughs> clearly, I understand there's a very good book as well, Anand, which, which, which you never like to talk about, but, but apparently so. Um, uh, I think it would be worth looking at uh, maybe any strategy document that the Remain campaign put together in 2016, because I think they got it so disastrously wrong that they probably persuaded anyone who was wavering to actually vote uh, to leave, because they got, they got the tone of that campaign completely wrong. Um, but the thing I was going to suggest, actually, um, which is slightly less serious but worth doing, um, you'll gather from my accent that I'm uh, from, from South Wales, because my strong Welsh accent. Yeah. Um, and I remember um, after the referendum, uh, loads of people saying, how did Wales, this place where you can't go 100 yards without seeing a sign <laughs> that says this thing was funded by the European Union, how did this nation vote to leave? Um, there's a really great uh, Welsh singer-songwriter who I've followed for a long time called Martin Joseph. Uh, Martin with a Y, uh, uh, yes. um, and uh, I recommend all of his music, but one song in particular from many years ago is a song called Please Sir, and it tells the story of what happens when the mines close and what happens to communities and to families when that happens. And there's a really strong lyric in it that says, please sir, when you make those decisions, do you have a vision of what happens to me? And ultimately, that is what Brexit is all about. It was that disconnect between people and politicians 
um, and the disconnecting Westminster and the rest of uh, the United Kingdom that brought us where we are. So I would recommend listening to that. Song. That's a good recommendation, not least because Martin Joseph, like Brexit, has a very hardcore fan base, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, he, 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 he does indeed. The, well, the Welsh Springsteen, as he's known. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anand, what have you got for this, the list? I'd say something nice. I'm bored of Brexit at the moment, to be honest. And I'd recommend, because we have an audience of a certain age here, go home and watch Bohemian Rhapsody, because it's fantastic. <laughs> and it will take your mind off this for two wonderful hours. That's the second Queen reference in this podcast. That's amazing. Yeah. And the very excellent Freddie Mercury programme was on um, Five Star TV last night. I recommend that. Okay. There's an excellent uh, a drama documentary, which is uh, hilariously bad. Um, <laughs> Catherine, do you want to give us a recommendation? Yep. I... Um, a great fan of Eurovision Song Contest, and I think uh, probably go. not. It doesn't. It doesn't do much for my academic credibility, but there you go. <laughs> and actually, Buxes and their magnificent <laughs> "Making Your Mind Up" has got oh a lot. Yes. Has got a lot to commend it. And I just think the first couple of lines of the li- is worth listening. I won't sing it to spare your listeners, but you. (laughs) 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 And I certainly won't be taking my skirt off, but you've got, it does say, you've got to speed it up and then you've got to slow it down. Because if you believe that our love can hit the top, you've got to play around. And that's maybe what Theresa May is doing with Jeremy Corbyn. The wisdom of Box Fizz. Um, Mike, has has Catherine just stolen your recommendation? (laughs) Uh, Fortunately not. Um, On a serious point, when I want to know what's going on, there's an Irish journalist called Tony Connolly who writes and does stuff for RTE. He is excellent, and you can follow him, and uh, he really does tell you what's happening, what the thinking is within the EU27 and the Commission. You can can Um, listen to the episode, yeah. And um, as a West Ham fan, uh, our our song song is um, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. (laughs) They fly so high, nearly reach the sky, then like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune's always hiding, I've looked everywhere. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles oh. in the air. Now, that, for me, is an allegory for the Brexiteers. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, a, there's philosophy everywhere, isn't there? Um, right, we've got a few minutes to fit in just a few questions. So if anybody wants to ask a question, do raise your hand. Uh, we'll do um, a couple at a time. Is there any women want to ask questions? Because the first law of uh, panels is ask a woman first. No? OK, yeah. OK, uh, two questions. but. Uh, if the EU on Wednesday <laughs> say that uh, they would recommend only a five-year extension, which means you go the full uh, length of the Parliament, oh, uh, so line the withdrawal agreement with a transition period and say right. that it will end after five years, given the, locality, uh, the legalities and all the rest of it, um, is that possible? And B, would it potentially kick it all into the long grass so that it might go away? <laughs> okay, and there's a fella just next to you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm um, just picking up on the point about South Wales or Wales in general. Um, so beyond just saying that Scotland is different, why do you think areas with similar demographics to the areas that you mentioned in Wales, in Scotland voted remain when they voted leave in England and Wales? Um, Thanks. Um, sounds like the first one for yeah. you, for Catherine. Yeah, I think it's unlikely they'll say five years um, because I really think they want us out because I think they all see it. They see us as an immensely disruptive force within the EU. Um, and indeed, what's interesting, what you're hearing um, rumours about at the moment is if they do give a year extension, um, it will come with a gentleman's agreement attached that we do not 
actively disrupt the <coughs> politics. But I think what you're suggesting is actually rather interesting, and it's something that I've thought about a bit, um, that what we know in the withdrawal agreement is there's a two-year, what the government calls implementation period. Now, this is one of the terrible balderization of language that has been going on because it's not implementing anything at all. It's a two-year, uh, well, it's, it goes to the end of 2020, possibly at the end of 2022, so it's essentially a two-year transition period. But you could imagine going for some sort of transition and then genuinely into an implementation period of a future agreement. But the problem about the, the uh, transition period as, as presently conceived is that Jacob Rees-Mogg's right. It does put us into a vassal state status, which will be immensely uncomfortable for us. So we'll be bound by all EU rules that come out of Brussels in that time with no say in them. And this will be very difficult for a very large state the size of our own. Worth bearing in mind that with the UK's departure, it's the equivalent to the <coughs> EU of 18 smaller states leaving the EU. And so it just gives you a sense of the perspective of how substantial we are and therefore how much say we have had. So to be silenced will be very unpopular. So you could see that actually a more creative solution might emerge going forward because I think the transition period and the withdrawal agreement is problematic. Um, Anna, do you want to pick up the second question and I'm going to add to it for Chris? <laughs> Yeah, on, on, on Scotland, I mean, it's a really, really, really good question. And I think that the short answer is Scottish nationalism. Because I think if you look at, if you look at British social attitudes polling over the last 10, 12 years, there is very little in the way of difference between Scottish attitudes towards the EU and attitudes in the rest of the UK. I mean, there, are, there are slight differences, but they're broadly similar. But what happened, I think, was because the SNP had a nationalist agenda and as part of that were pro-Remain, a lot of people who might otherwise, I think, have toyed with the idea of voting leave prioritised that, and it was seen as, as part of the sort of nationalist struggle. And I think that's what changed the voting in Scotland dramatically compared to Wales, which is why you see similar demographics voting in a different way. Can I just add to that, Chris? Any, any of us who covered the Scottish referendum and Scotland since will be aware this is not surprising that societies get split by referendums. Mm. I mean, to what extent did Number 10 actually look at Scotland's example and think, ah, how do we avoid that happening here? Oh, so actually, the um, the example of the Scottish referendum is very interesting because what fundamentally happened was that um, the same people who ran the Scottish uh, referendum campaign for uh, for the union mm -hmm. um, they looked at that and they said that was really successful. We're going to run exactly the same campaign for the Remain campaign for, for Europe. Um, and that's kind of where it, where it went but wrong. But so 2015 had happened in the meantime. Yes, indeed. And SNP had won 56 or 59 seats. Indeed, and you might have think they didn't have looked at it, but fundamentally they looked at that campaign and they thought, well, we basically <coughs> ran Project FIA in Scotland and Scotland voted to stay within the union and we're going to do the same thing again. And, and the calculation, I think, which is what you're hinting towards is precisely, my view is that the... Uh, pro-union campaign in Scotland was not a success, actually. Yeah. Yes, they scraped through, um, but they only scraped through, and they should have done far better. Yeah. Using that template to then run the same campaign in 2016 was a disaster. I mean, Scotland worked if you started off 75-25 and then mm. squandered that to 55-45. <laughs> yeah. If you're starting off neck and neck like we do with the EU referendum, you might stop for a moment and think, hang on, yeah. that might not work it. Uh, yeah. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Was there a couple more questions? Just... Um, was there three more? Let's, try and let's, let's ram, the ram them in if they're quick. Yeah, start at the back and work our way forward, shall we? If you you keep them nice and brief. First. 
I just, I'm just interested in what Mike said about wanting to um, do politics in an evidence-based um, way. How, how would that work in a sort of age where most people get their news on social media? How would you present that to people so they could then make decisions? Okay, um, there's another question next to you. Yeah. Uh, you talked a lot about the mistakes that, that Theresa May made immediately after the referendum, but it seems to me a lot of those were kind of forced on her by the way Vote Leave campaigned and had an influence in the Conservative Party. Oh, it's all going to be easy, German car makers and immigration baseball bat. Um, I just wonder if you think they could have campaigned in a different way that didn't open up these divisions, and would they have won if they had? Okay, and there's a fellow down the front with just the last question. Um, This is a slightly techy question for Catherine. When you were talking, you referred to the absence of the Advocate General's conditions in the Court of Justice final opinion on relocation. If I've understood Joanna Cherry's thesis, she says the absence of the conditions in the court Catherine, do you want to take that yes, on the, on uh, on the, as briefly as yeah, you can? <laughs> uh, on, on that, the Advocate General's opinion isn't legally binding on the court. It's an advisory opinion. Um, and so it is significant that it's not there. On the other hand, there is a general obligation on all member states to act in good faith under Article 4.3 of the TEU. And so you could argue it's implicit that the UK doesn't use this opportunistically. And so then there is an argument what happens if we revoke this week and then we re-trigger it the following week and that would seem to undermine that notion of good faith. I suspect we wouldn't do that because uh, I mean it, each, each one would require an act of parliament following the Miller judgment. It's a good question. I think that vote leave um, they did exactly the right thing. Um, I mean, I think it was a distasteful campaign, but it was very successful. Um, Dominic Cummings, who ran it, is, is a brilliant uh, strategist. Um, and I don't think you can really sort of, you know, they had one ambition and, th and they achieved it. But I think there's a broader point, which is that actually people on that side of the argument have been so much more massively successful over now a number of years. And even since the referendum, when they, when they won it on that basis, um, the sort of Brexiteers have managed to maintain a pretty united position and a very clear narrative all the way through. I think one of the interesting stories of the past sort of two years is the people on the other side, the sort of Remain side, as it were, they've not managed to coalesce around an alternative point of view. They've been split. Um, some people want a referendum, some people want a customs union. They've never managed to find a unified position um, to sort of oppose what the sort of vote leave and the Brexiteers have, have argued for. So again, I come back to the point I made earlier, which actually the, this has fundamentally been a communications battle. Uh, the Brexiteers have won it, and they are continuing to, to do so. Okay, Mike, I'm going to ask you to try and finish on a positive note. Uh, Evidence-based politics and a new way of doing things in the area of social media. Is it possible? Yeah. It is possible, but it requires um, us all to start thinking about how we deal with the forms of, of fake news and uh, undermining of democracy that we, we've seen coming um, via the misuse of the social media, whether by state actors or by very wealthy American billionaires. And the, we, we, we've got to... Um, the, there is a lot of work going on in Parliament at this moment. The um, uh, Damien Hines is um, 
sorry, Damien Collins is sorry, um, select committee, the um, and others looking at these areas, um, and there will be, um, I think, a need for Parliament to see how we can make our social media more responsible and, and stop the, the an anonymous troll accounts and all the, the other things as well, and that, that's difficult. Um, but on the point about evidence-based policy making, just to say, um, we're going to try it. And it's crucial that we, we, we try. We may not succeed. I mean, uh, what we have done, we may just be a small footnote in history and things may just go on as they are, leading to a terrible disaster for our country and our standing in the world. But somebody has got to try and be true to ourselves and try and make a difference. OK, and he's the boss, uh, so he gets the final word. Just on, on evidence-based policy, I mean, obviously, I'm a fan of evidence-based policy, but I would just caution against the danger that evidence-based policy turns into there is no alternative politics, because I think that lay at the root of a lot of the dissatisfaction with our system. And if you end up with a system that looks divorced from the electorate because it's handled by technocrats and experts and sort of uh, quangos, that's a route to trouble as well. Okay, listen, like this podcast always does, it's run over longer than I anticipated. But uh, thank you for coming, and can I ask you to say thank you to the panel, Anna Menon, Chris Wilkins, uh, Catherine Barnard, and Mike Gates, MP. Thank, thank you. you.